New Zealand, we have an aspirational aim to have one million New Zealanders being able to speak basic real Māori by 2040. One million speaking basic te reo in 20 years is the government plan. Some say that's impossible. And the findings released in a Royal Society journal and based on census data make it look pretty bleak. They say the language is on its way to extinction. But what if we've got the numbers wrong? Unfortunately, the question on the census, is essentially I would say is vague. Yeah. <laughs> in a sense, what I'm saying is... I don't think the census gives us a reliable picture. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail, language expert Chris Lane crunches the data and says he's cautiously optimistic. And he tells me why, as an Australian, he's passionate about Te Reo. My brother married an Aboriginal woman and her tribe, her group of people, had their own particular language. As a child I learnt that the last native speaker had died in the mm. 1960s. But first, a new three-year study could give Te Reo a boost, help us reach that million by 2040, even for people who don't speak or learn it. The study's been given $660,000 from the 2019 Marsden Fund, Te Putia Rangahau, to, quote, explore whether adult language acquisition can be facilitated by awakening this latently acquired knowledge called a proto-lexicon. Whew. Well, to put that into plain language, here's Professor Jeanette King from University of Canterbury. We've discovered that um, non-Māori-speaking New Zealanders actually have quite an in-depth knowledge about uh, the phonotactics, the sound structure of the Māori language, and we think they've built this up through incidental exposure through their lives, so from schools where they might do a few waiata to being present when there are speeches. I was inspired to uphold the mana of my tipuna. As echoed in the words of the Māori battalion, take the honour of the people with you. Owe, ake ake kiakahae. Māori welcome ceremonies. Through to singing the national anthem. We were quite surprised to find that people who can't speak Māori at all, don't know the meanings of very many Māori words at all, have built up quite an extensive knowledge of the word forms of Māori. Jeanette, proto-lexicon. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what that means is we know that um, infants, for example, when they are exposed to their language, pick up what we call a proto-lexicon, and that's words before you attach meaning to them. So imagine a child. You're listening to me now, and you can understand, you know, you can hear the different words that I'm speaking. But when children are listening to adults speaking, it all just sounds like one long garbled um, you know, piece of sound. And perhaps we get the same sort of um, experience if you've ever travelled overseas and been in a situation where people are speaking a different language that you don't understand. You can't hear the words. It all just sounds, you know, a complete... Um, you know, experience. Mm. So that's what it's like for children, young children. And what they do is that they process all these sounds and they hear some sounds more often and more in combination with other sounds and they gradually learn 
words. But when we say I learn them, they understand the form. So they might hear the word cat, for example, um, being spoken a lot around them. Mm. And so they get used to and they realise that that's a a word, obviously not consciously, but (laughs) they register that. And then they'll attach meaning to the word. They'll see that, ah, cat, that's associated with that fluffy animal that I play with. So a proto-lexicon is that knowledge of the form's of our language before you attach meaning to it. We've known infants go through this sort of stage as part of being able to be speakers of a language, but we've never known before um, anywhere in the world that adults could build up a proto-lexicon. And um, New Zealand is just the ideal place to study this because we have a language like Māori um, that is reasonably widespread. People get exposed to it incidentally, but they, we know they don't speak it. Yeah, so, so, so for example, what kind of words did you grow up with? You grew up on the West Coast. What sort of Māori words did you grow up with that, you know, you almost take for granted that you, you don't realise that you know them, but you do? Yeah, well, I guess even place names. So I grew up in Hokitika. So while I was growing up, I knew that, you know, I was exposed to that word. I saw it written. I heard it spoken. Um, but I didn't know that it you know, it was made up of hoki and tika. I didn't know the meanings of those. But I got to know those sorts of sound and combinations and so on. And um, when I went to primary school, um, one of the first Māori songs that we learnt was Tūtira Mai um, and we sang that and we sang that without knowing what it meant That's the sort of exposure that um, I got as a child and that I think many of us have had. Why is it important in the whole context of te reo? Well, what we're going to do is we're saying, well, OK, if um, our adult non-Māori-speaking New Zealanders have this proto-lexicon, can we activate it? Does it play a role when they do start to learn Māori? And we've got a natural sort of laboratory, really, at the University of Canterbury. Like most universities in uh, New Zealand, we have a teacher training um, section, and all teacher trainees in New Zealand do courses in basic real Māori. And at Canterbury, we have um, students in these courses, not only from New Zealand, but we have a a reasonably large contingent from Canada who come over to do teacher training in New Zealand. So we're going to be able to try and recruit these um, students, both New Zealanders and the um, Canadians, and have a look at what they know before the course starts. And we'll look and test how well they acquire the meanings of the Māori words they are taught in their course um, immediately at the end of the course and then a bit later on to see how well they retain it. And we're hoping to find that our non-Māori speaking New Zealanders actually acquire the meanings of words, Māori words, quicker and with more depth than the Canadians. And the implications for this um, for New Zealand is that New Zealand, we have an aspirational aim to have one million New Zealanders being able to speak basic real Māori by 2040. Now that's only 20 years away. Um, More and more 
New Zealanders are learning te reo. But if we can say, well, actually, you've got a little bit of a head start. We're not saying that learning um, a language is easy, but um, maybe the exposure that you've had that you don't even know that you've had to te reo Māori through your lifetime is going to give you a little bit of a head start. That would be, I think, an amazing incentive for getting more people to learn te reo. Yeah, and is it also a case for putting more words into our everyday language? You know, when I grew up and heard the news or read it in the newspaper, there were the odd words, I guess, like marae or hui. But it feels like today there are a lot more words in everyday use. Would would that be correct? Yes, there certainly is, and people are doing research on that and, and they're tracking that. And yes, more and more, you may have heard this yourself, non-Māori New Zealanders are some, sometimes using Māori words, even when there's an English alternative. I've heard um, sports people, Pākehā sports people, talk about travelling overseas with their whānau to compete. And what they mean by that is their relatives, their parents or whatever, and often friends. So... I think we are using more and more Māori words. Um, When I spoke to you earlier this week, you talked about your sister who's lived in Australia for 20 to 30 years and she went up to Waitangi and you told me that, you know, she noticed quite a big change in the way we use the language. That's right. I mean, over my lifetime, um, when I grew up, I, I told you I grew up in Hokitika, but when I grew up, it was Hokitika, and it still is that pronunciation for a lot of New Zealanders. But increasingly, it's becoming expected that we will give a Māori pronunciation to Māori place names. This is Kevin Black at Radio Hauraki. And the fixer on Hauraki. And yes, my sister, who's been away for a long time, came back and said, Oh my goodness, I, we went to Waitangi and I've just discovered that I've been saying the word Maori wrong all these years. Please tell me how to pronounce it um, correctly. We haven't had any waka jumping recently, but um, we, you know, there's a lot of phrases that have come into um, New Zealand English. I'm in no way swayed by this constant social media grandstanding by our young putiputi Pania. You derive your mana in te ao Māori, not from pleasing parties. As a wahine Māori leader, I felt a deep sense of hurt. Calling someone a putiputi is rather a condescending statement to dismiss our rangatahi. And it's quite the feature of New Zealand English that anyone from overseas comes. You open most newspapers, you'll find um, probably even some headlines with Māori words in them, and it really is the most distinctive feature of our lexicon, our vocabulary in New Zealand, uh, is the use of Māori words. We called it the Dole to Apprenticeship Scheme. It's now called Mana and Mahi. It's all about young people who are on unemployment benefits. So if this goal of one million New Zealanders um, speaking what basic te reo by 2040 becomes a reality, what will we sound like when we chat to each other? Or how will it sound, do you think? Oh, I think there'll be just increasing use, um, as we said, of more Māori words. Perhaps people code switching, switching um, from speaking English and, and putting in a, perhaps a Māori sentence or a phrase. So not just words, but phrases and perhaps even sentences. You've talked to me a little bit about what your research will do by looking at this uh, 
cohort of students, uh, the Canadian and the um, New Zealand students. What else will you look at over the three years? We'll also be doing other sorts of experiments where we get people to play a little game that um, teaches them the meanings of some Māori words. So we will do more experimental type research that will be drilling down into how people um, attach meanings to Māori words. Um, And one of the outcomes is going to be actually for... um, Language teachers in general, a lot of people who teach languages tell learners to expose themselves to the target language as much as possible. You know, put on a podcast, um, you know, listen to as much as possible, just have it in the background. And so there's an instinctive realisation that that sort of exposure is going to help people with language learning. And it will give a lot more incentive for people when they're learning languages to be able to pick it up things up a bit quicker. What's your own experience, Jeanette? I mean, do you speak the language? Yes, so um, I started learning te reo Māori a long, long time ago. I think I started when I was 15, so um, it's been a long, long journey. Why did you start learning it? It's really hard to say, and I can't really quite remember, but um, I was attracted to the language as a secondary school student, and then I studied further at university. And becoming involved with the Māori community, I joined what at the time was called the Māori Club at university, and we did um, kapahaka, and I got to know people. And I really felt... Gosh, if I'm a New Zealander, this is part of being a Pākehā New Zealander, as I am, is being engaging with our Indigenous culture here. So it became a really important part of exploring my own identity as a New Zealander. And what is your dream with the language? What would you like to happen? Um, Yes, I would like to see more and more people. When I first started learning te reo in the um, 80s and 90s, actually a lot of Māori were quite suspicious of Pākehā, non-Māori, learning te reo at that time. And that's because the language was an even more vulnerable state. Um, But nowadays... Māori are much more accepting. The fact that we have that aspirational aim of a million New Zealanders means that we're going to have a lot of non-Māori. We want a lot of non-Māori to be able to speak a little bit of te reo. Language experts can't seem to agree on whether the language is doomed or not. The trouble is, we just don't have the data to give a full picture of exactly who speaks te reo, both Māori and non-Māori. I think one needs to be cautiously optimistic. It's kind of a shaky revival. Chris Lane calls himself an independent researcher. He used to lecture in linguistics at Victoria University and he's been looking at various surveys on the language for many years. What my paper for publications is about is the fact that you get quite a different looking picture depending which statistics you look at based on what question has been asked. So in the census, there's a certain question that's asked, in what language or languages can you have a conversation about a lot of everyday things? That's the census question. If you just look at data from that census question, Māori still seems to be in decline. Mm. But I've looked at data now from four different surveys, which comes from answers to a different question, which is, what is the first language that you learned to speak as a child? Uh, The other important part of the analysis is if we split people up according to when they were born, we can see a pattern. So people who were born up to the 1950s, there's a fair proportion of those who have Māori as their first language. 
Māori people born in the 60s and 70s, very small number of those of first language speakers. If we look at Māori born in the 80s and 90s, there's actually a, a greater percentage of those who have Māori as a first language compared with that previous group born in the 60s and 70s. And so I've looked at this in four different surveys. And in surveys, you have to be very careful about your margin of error all the time. But, you know, these differences are big enough. They're beyond the margin of error. We can be pretty confident um, as to what they mean. So the next question is, why are we getting these different results? And my argument is that, unfortunately, the question on the census essentially I would say is vague (laughs) in a sense what I'm saying is I don't think the census gives us a reliable picture I think we're actually getting a somewhat more reliable picture if we look at those first language statistics which do show evidence of a revival Um, if we compare the first language (laughs) then to the speaking proficiency the thing we see there is there's quite a lot of people who have Maori or say they have Maori as their first language but then as adults, they say, well, actually, no, my proficiency is not very good. So there's a, a degree of attrition there. Which so is... they, might, they might have been born into a, a home where Māori was, was spoken mm. more than English, but for various reasons, they have lost the language. Yeah, I mean, the way I think of it is, you can get kids started as first language speakers. You speak to them as young children or whatever. Mm. But then there's another whole journey in maintaining that language and getting it to a kind of adult level of usage. I think our knowledge of what's really happening is, is actually really quite patchy. Yeah. And I'm just trying to sort of shed a bit of light on it. Up to the 1960s, there was a, really a very negative attitude towards Māori and a lot of Māori weren't who could speak the language didn't speak it to their children. In the 70s, you start, start to get a lot of agitation for Māori language in schools, this petition, 1972 petition and so on, um, and various things starting up like diatarangi to teach Māori to families and so on. That's the beginning of a big change of consciousness for Māori, but also there's been a sort of gradual change of consciousness for the rest of us as well, because I'm not Māori, no. Mm. And I think that's also an important part, you know, to have a sense that, that there's more acceptance of the language. It's probably an important part of this whole process. It's a mysterious process. I remember 20 years ago trying to find a sort of guidebook to how do we go about language revitalization? Is there somewhere, somebody that's done it that can show you how it works? No, nobody has really done this kind of um, revitalization of an indigenous language. Oh, Lots of people about... all around the world, they look to Māori. Māori are in the front of this. Really? Yes. But what about Wales? I think don't, don't they Wales, often use Wales as an example? Wales is a somewhat different example. Wales has done very well in uh, using education to, well, both maintain and actually expand the language. But uh, the most recent statistics I've looked at for Welsh, they have not turned around the intergenerational language transmission the learning of the language in the home is still appears to be declining in Wales. There, there is a kind of revival through mm. education. Um, and we may have thought that was sort of the case with Māori because a lot of the research has tended to focus on kōakārēo and kūrakaupapa and, and educational interventions. And so we've almost not known what's been happening in families. 
And the other thing I found also in the research is that people whose first language is Māori were extremely likely to go to Kohangareo and Kura Kaupapa. So the, the things are sort of intertwined. Yeah. Again, I think, yeah, there really is strong evidence of this sort of groundswell reversal of the previous loss of Māori and this, this you know, revival is actually going on. Yeah. But meanwhile, we, we, I, I suspect we won't even see it in the 2018 uh, census statistics. We won't see you know, that question. Yeah, because so. it's to do with the question. Diff- you ask different questions, you get different data. You know, it's apples and oranges. Mm. It's the mm. old statistical uh, and, issue, yeah. Yeah, and what's your thinking? Because I think the government's goal is one million to speakers by 2040. Actually, I haven't really looked at that in, in detail. It depends, you know, as I've been indicating. On the question. It depends terribly <laughs> much on exactly how you define who's a speaker, mm. you know, and what questions you ask people or just how you go about that. It's sort of cautiously optimistic, you know, because mm. it's, it's a hard struggle, really. And is it important to you, you know, you, you're not just doing it for the sake of looking at data, is, is the revival of the language important to you personally? Yes, it is. Um, I grew up in Australia, and, um, yeah, my, my brother married an Aboriginal woman. Her tribe, her group of people had their own particular language. As a child, I learnt that the last native speaker had died in the mm. 1960s. Uh, this always struck me as the saddest, saddest thing. Yeah, and... Uh, but I came over here to New Zealand in the 1970s and I started learning Māori about the second year that I was here and I had a wonderful experience with that. I actually became reasonably proficient in speaking, which I no longer am, uh. although I can still understand what people say. So, I, you know, I do have a, a strong personal bond with the language itself and, you know, with the whole concept of the, the survival and revival of, of languages, you know, that's, yeah, it's sort of close to the heart. That's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Jeanette King and Chris Lane. Ka nui tēnei.